Welcome to the Gospel Addict Podcast. I'm Greg Bryan. And I'm Jim Resky. We're gospel addicts because we believe the gospel of Jesus isn't just good news, it's the best news ever. We're addicted to the gospel because it doesn't just start us out in the Christian life, it is the Christian life. Join us as we look at the Bible through the lens of the gospel. Thanks so much for listening. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, we're going to be loving covering today Hosea and Joel. Just a quick program note before we get started. Dr. Bob is going to have to leave a few minutes in. So, with that in mind, here we go. Today we're going to talk about Hosea and Joel, but we are turning the page from the major prophets to the minor prophets now. And to do that, I thought this would be a handy chart. Uh, and you have this the PDF that goes out in the email afterwards, just as a reference. But it's a, a little chart that has all the prophets. And if you're listening to this just purely on audio, what you have on the screen is a little table, a chart that uh, shows all the prophets of the Bible divided into three time periods, pre-exile prophets, exile prophets, and post-exile prophets. And then within those three categories, divided by the audience to which they were speaking. So, for example, in the first row, pre-exile prophets to Israel, the North Kingdom, would be Amos and Hosea. And all the prophets on the right side are listed, the ones in bold are the major prophets, the ones that are not bold are the minor prophets, as it should be. The minor prophets, as you know, are not minor because they're less important, they're just minor because they books are shorter in length. That's the real distinction between major and minor prophets. Hosea and Joel are red solely because those are the two that I'm going to be covering with you today. Now, they appear in your Bible as Hosea and Joel, but I'm going to do Joel and Hosea. I'm going to reverse the order, and I'm doing that on purpose because... Hosea really is the main event this morning. And Hosea 3 in particular is the main event. And so we're going to build up and lead up to Hosea 3. And if we did anything after Hosea 3, it would be very anticlimactic. And also, there's a lot in Joel. There's a lot to learn from him. And I don't want to give it short shrift and rush through the end. So we're going to start with Joel, spend a little time in Joel, but not too much. I don't want to get bogged down in Joel, because I really want to get to Hosea, because that's really the main event this morning. So, a few things on Joel. What we're talking about today is what makes Joel unique. Joel's uh, treatment of the day of the Lord, God's response to repentance, and Joel talking about the future day of the Lord. Some questions that the book of Joel raises that I think are really radical that can distract us from the key takeaways that the book has for us. So, that's what we'll be covering in about 20 25 minutes. So, what makes Joel unique? We do know that the name Joel means Jehovah is God. There's very little else we know about the prophet Joel himself. It's not clear who Joel was. He does start the book by saying, Joel, the son of Pethuel. But that's a little help because we really don't know who Pethuel was either. Uh, and uh, the other thing is that we don't know when it was written. Uh, now, the table you saw a minute ago is written, some people say it was written in the around 850 BC. Could be. So the most prophetic books will start with some reference to kings. But Joel doesn't mention any kings. He mentions Jerusalem and the temple, but no kings. So by contrast, the first verse of Joel says, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of heaven. And then he launches right into it. Hosea, by contrast, Hosea 1 verse 1, The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beery, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. That gives you a lot of historical context. You can place Hosea pretty accurately, but not Joel. We really don't know. And the thing about Joel is, some commentators say he was very early, one of the earliest prophets. 
He's a contemporary of Elijah, some say. Others say, well, he does seem to quote lots of other books of the Bible. He quotes Exodus, Obadiah, Ezekiel, Zephaniah, Nahum, Isaiah, Amos, and Malachi. If he's quoting from them, he's probably one of the last prophets that arose. Now he's saying, well, he's quoting from them. He doesn't say, well, as it says in the book of Malachi, next one, or as we from Exodus chapter 34, it's the fifth, he just uses the same words. So you can, some commentators might say, well, he's just inspired by the Holy Spirit to use the same words in phraseology as this other verse written somewhere else. That's it. But he does seem to quote from a lot of his other books. And the thing about it is that he, he seems to understand that you already know what Israel says. He doesn't seem to go into detail about it. So, for example, if you read the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah, in the book of Jeremiah, people say, what is it that we've done this so bad? What's our sin? Uh, and Jeremiah says, well, I'll tell you what your sin is. I'll blast you with it. This, 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 this. You've done these things. And Joel doesn't do that. He doesn't make any direct accusation. He assumes you know. So it sounds like he's writing, understanding that you already know the other books of the Bible. And you already know what Israel's sin is. I've known you to tell you, you already know what it is. Have your own. For purposes no longer your huckleberry. Is it not also logically possible that Malachi, Ezekiel, etc. are quoting from Joel? Could be. Okay, Joel talks about, and the major theme of Joel, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is referred to as a past day of the Lord that had just happened. Chapter 1, he talks about a swarm of locusts that came through. And the commentators say it doesn't sound like he's talking about a hypothetical swarm of locusts. Sounds like a real event that took place. In other words, he doesn't say, well, imagine what a swarm of locusts would be like. It would be horrible were it to happen. He says, when the locusts came, it was horrible, right? And it was. And he talks about it in some detail uh, about the, the, the locusts, the devastation they read. And when he does, when he talks about the locusts, he says, that was the day of the Lord. That locust was not just a natural event. It was God's judgment on us for our sin. And it would have evoked some kind of memory for them of the plagues of Egypt, where God had God's judgment on their enemies. Only this time, the judgment is coming on them. It, the storm of locusts was not just a natural event; it was God's judgment on us, His people. What it does is He calls for repentance. So, for example, in chapter one, verse thirteen, He says, "Put on sackcloth, you priests, and more. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, you who minister before my God." And then he seems to include himself in repentance. He doesn't say, oh, you need to repent, I need to repent too. In chapter 1, verse 19, he says, To you, Lord, I call. The fire has devoured the pastures and the wilderness and flames have burned up all the trees of you. So he calls for repentance. But the day of the locust was bad, the day of the Lord, the day of the locust was bad, all of that was just a foreshadowing, a metaphor for the future day of the Lord and things to come. And in chapter 2, he talks about a different kind of locust. He said, these locusts are armed. The locusts were just a representation of an invading army, marauding down the soldiers, not just a band, a whole army that's going to take over everything. And he describes them in great detail. They don't break ranks, they swarm over this thing, they climb to the windows, they devastate everything in their path. It's horrible. So in chapter 2, verse 3, he says, Before them, the army, fire devours. Behind them, a flame blazes. Before them, the land is like the Garden of Eden. Behind them, a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. Uh, and the thing about this army that's odd is it's God's army. He says, 
The Lord thunders, this is chapter 2, verse 11. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number, and mighty is the army that obeys his command. So in context, uh, at this time, the, uh, the people then would have said, oh, the day of the Lord is a wonderful thing. The day of the Lord is something to look forward to. The day of the Lord is going to be the time when God comes and finally wreaks vengeance on all our enemies. That's certainly the way the Jews in Palestine and Jesus is kind of thought about the day of the Lord. Sometime in the future, God's going to come here and bring him aside and wipe out these Romans to get rid of them. He's going to bring judgment on our enemies. And Joel reverses that. He says, the day of the Lord is coming. It's going to be an army. It's going to be a concrete army array. It's going to be God's army. It's not going to be vanquishing our enemies. It's going to be attacking us. Very different focus. God's judgment is coming on us. And so he says, the day of the Lord is a beautiful thing to be looking forward to. Chapter 2, verse 11, the day of the Lord is dreadful. Who can endure? And the proper response to that is repentance. Repentance. Chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. This famous verse, rend your hearts, not your garments. I don't want you going through the motions. Say, okay, okay, I get it. Army's coming. What do I need to do to avoid that calamity? Because I want you to avoid your heart. Rend your hearts and not your garments. And why should you repent? And this is one where he quotes Exodus. I'll give you Exodus quotes him. For he is gracious. God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. That's why you should repent. Then the second half, chapter two, it's like a long poem that talks about this. And so if we get a microphone, Rex, if you just you're close, if you just read from the screen, I'd appreciate that. Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I am going to send you grain, new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied and full with them. And I will never again make you a reproach among the nations, but I will remove the northern army far from you, and I will drive it into a parched and desolate land. So it's interesting, so God is saying, this is a poem of restoration. I am going to restore you. I'm going to bring great things, right? Grain, new wine, and oil. The phrase comes up a lot. But then there's a reversal, an about face. In verse 20, I will remove the northern army far from you. I will drive the other army out. Wait, I thought it was this one. Well, it was some other army that was being used as God's instrument of judgment, but now God is saying, I will drive them out. And then, this section, in chapter 2, verse 28, Rex will see and afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all the people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So if those words sound familiar to you, they should. Because these words, this exact passage from chapter 2, verse 28, to the first half of chapter, verse 32, are quoted by Peter in the second chapter of Acts on the day of Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit comes down and they're all speaking in tongues and everyone says, you guys are all drunk. And Peter gets up and says, we're not drunk, it's only nine in the morning. He says, this whole thing happened exactly as was prophesied in the prophet Joel. He puts this exact passage. And when he gets to the end, he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He says some other things too. Everyone's cussing at you. 
3,000 people come to repentance and come to the Lord, and the Christian church is founded on the day of Pentecost. So the prophet Joel was writing these words, perhaps primarily for the day of Pentecost, to establish the Christian church. But he also says the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood, and that didn't happen on the day of Pentecost. So he's talking maybe about the day of Pentecost, but also about the events, future events that are to come. So, summarize chapter 2. God responds to repentance. God will take the locusts, restore the land, bring the divine presence to the people. Then in chapter 3, the writer follows that exact pattern the people, locusts, restore the land, bring the divine presence, and writes three poems about exactly what that means. Uh, so, for example, when he says, I'm going to bring my divine presence to the people in chapter 3, verse 17, he says, Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. Dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain, so Jerusalem will be holy, and strangers will pass through it no more. So that's the book of Joel. Now, questions. This little book, three chapters long, raises some interesting questions. Let me let me beat you to the punch before you do before you answer your questions. I've got some questions of this of my own for the reader. Our tragedy is always God's judgment. Tragedy is always God's judgment. The locusts came and Joel said, These locusts are God's tragedy on you. You know the answer, by the way, don't shout it out. <laughs> You'll see a mic on your Our tragedy is always God's judgment. And the locusts come and, and Joel does the fairies are God's judgment. Are we responsible for collective sin or just individuals? That's a tough one. That's a good question. I like to think I'm responsible for my individual sin, but I'm not responsible for anybody else. The judgment here, God says, God says, I'm going to judge these nations and attack Israel. What if you're in that nation? You say, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. I was going to end up with that. Don't want to think. You blame those souls. They went in and they went in and they went in and they I'm going to be responsible for my individual sins. How dare you blame me for collective sins of the group that I belong to? I don't like them. Which is it? Now, Israel's specific prophecies applicable to us. And as the one uh, spot around Joel getting ready for this, even through the whole thing, he said, Look, why do you Gentiles do this? Is anything to do with you? This is a prophecy about Israel. All the references are to Israel. There are specific geographical references to Israel. Israel's going to have been overtaken militarily, will be overtaken in the future in some Armageddon, and then God's going to restore the land of Israel. Why do you Gentiles insert yourself in this story? And then, which future battles prophesied here? Which is it? Is it the Syrian conquest, the Babylonian conquest, the Roman conquest? Maybe it's a future I'm going Which is it? So we could spend a lot of time talking about all these questions because they're really interesting. I think they're all distractions. They're all distractions. They're rabbit holes we could go down that will take us away from what I think the Lord has for us. The key takeaways from the book of Joel that I want to get to on the next page. But before we leave the distractions behind, let me just rattle off a couple things on this. Are tragedies always God's judgment? Absolutely not. That's what the book of Job in particular is here to teach us. Tragedies are not always God's judgment. Can they be? Yes. But unless you're a prophet, you'll never know. Job could say that most locusts were God's judgment because he was a prophet. Unless you're a prophet, you're not in a position to say it. Are we responsible for collective sin or individual sin? Yes and yes, both. Are Israel specific prophecies applicable to us? Maybe not, but there's still a lot we can learn. What future Baptist cross prophets I hear probably changes. Now, with those quick answers to dispense with, some other questions if you're not nervous. Give this pat to you for those on Thank you, Pat. You know, you talked about the form of locusts, and in chapter one, verse four, you see these four successive yes. forms to show that the destruction is complete. 
Well, one of the great things in Joel is 2.26, where the prophet says, I, speaking in the name of God, will restore to you the years of the city. So, when God disciplines, he does it for a reason, but he can always restore those. And of course, you've already covered, there was repentance before that. That's right. That's what, that's how you get to some semblance of restoration. Well, that's good. That actually came to one of my key takeaways on this. Jim Lock. So I, I really love this chapter too. I thought it was amazing to show the character and the heart of God. And so I, my question, sort of rhetorical here is, what is God like? And he says, this is what I'm like. He says, you know, when you're repenting, don't tear your clothing in your grief. Tear your heart, return to the Lord, for he is merciful and compassionate, slow to anger, filled with unfailing love, eager to relent and not punish. This is what he's like. It's like, I can't wait to get back at those people. No. He's eager to relent. Right. He's eager to forgive, to restore, to reconcile. And so that, that affected me this week as I read. And I had two relationships that were kind of on the aisles this week. And I'm like, wait a minute. God is eager to forgive. I think it takes me to It just shows some eagerness to reconcile and restore. Because that's what he's like. That's good. He's eager. That's all great. That's great. If you don't mind, I'll just move on to this because some of this I think is going to be covered in the next video we're going to talk about. We're going to stop for a second and get some another bit of the comments. What's the point? If these little things I said here are all distractions, then what's the point of the book? Key takeaways. Human sin and failure wreak devastation in our world. It's a fallen world, it's a fallen world because of us, because of our sin. Judgment is the natural consequence of living outside of God's will. People say, why is God judge? Why is God an end to judge? Why is there judgment? And usually the answer is, it's because of us. In other words, to give you a simple analogy to unpack this, understand it. If I, I'm a free man, I make my own decisions, nobody tells me what to do. So if I buy a car, and the design of the car says the gasoline goes over there, oil goes over there, no one tells me what to do. I'm going to put oil over here and gasoline over here. If my car breaks down, I say, why is the designer of this car judging me? The child, the design of the car will say, I'm not judging you, you're an idiot. You're the one who's bringing havoc in your own life. Why are you blaming me, the designer? I designed the perfect car, you screwed up. That little analogy helps me understand the idea of God's judgment. Secondly, God is going to use you and say to accomplish his purposes. I'll bet you all those nations, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, Romans, they all thought they were making free will decisions to attack Israel, and they were. Free will decisions. They were sinful decisions. Yes, they were sinful decisions to attack Israel. And yet God wove it together as part of his plan. It's like in, in Genesis, when Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery, and then in Genesis, Joseph looks at him and says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You made a sinful, free will decision to sell me into slavery. Was it sin? Yes, it was. And yet God used that sin as part of his plan. It's like Judas betraying Jesus. Is that a simple free will decision? Absolutely. Did God use it as part of his plan of redemption? Absolutely. So even the simple decisions of these other nations are going to be used by God to accomplish his purpose, and yet he's called into judgment. They are still accountable for these decisions. Third, God longs to show mercy to those who acknowledge and confess sin, which is kind of the way they do it. The key message of the book is repentance. 
If you start getting lost on the, you know, which battle is it, was the Assyrians? If you read it and you start asking those kinds of questions, you are looking at it as if one of the books is trying to promise. Blues. God left this little trail there. If I'm really astute, I can, I can see through that, I can figure it out. And that's the way you're thinking, that's what you think the major thrust of the book is. That it's not, it's about repentance. God says, this is the response that I'm looking for. And all of that should lead to hope. Not only that God will one day defeat evil in our world, but also inside of all of us, and someday make all things new. Now, that is a great message of hope, but how? How is that going to happen? How is that going to happen? Because this is the next words I'm going to put on the screen are read because I really want to remember these. I think this is the point of the book that if you forget everything else, remember this. The locusts and the army illustrated the vastness of God's wrath for sin. We vastly underestimate our sin problem. We vastly underestimate God's reaction to our sin problem. You say, oh, yeah, I didn't begin. I'm just sorry. Here, go ahead. Go ahead. It's not the risk. All right. There. I'll get back to the And we, we take it so casually and so lightly. And God says, do you want to know what the proper, proportional response is to your sin? It is utter devastation. A locust that just came through, they destroyed everything. Like a variety of that comes to you and just destroys everything. That is the proper, proportional response to your sin. And we underestimate it. We take it so lightly. We don't think that our sin is that fast. And God is not. And this book is saying we have needed a better understanding of our sin problem by understanding what it does to God and his response to it. So, how does God resolve that? Because he's also merciful and kind and just, right? What's he going to say? He's going to say, well, okay, I got angry. I got really angry back there. I got carried away. Bad joke. I made a bad joke. I'm sorry. I calmed down now. Now I will restore you to peace. In other words, in some phases, God's going to be angry, and then that subsides, and later, he's loving. So that, that relationship with God is wrong. In other words, how can God be more loving and just at exactly the same time? How can he say, I am filled with love for you, I will restore you, I will bless you, the kindness that you were talking about. But at the same time, never let go of his justice. The answer, of course, is we all know is that someone had to take a full force of that wrath for us. The only way this is possible is substitutionary atonement. The full blast, the full force, all of that wrath for sin, the devastation, that should have come on us justly and rightly and unfortunately for our sin problem, all fell on and us, for us, in our place, on our behalf. And that, there's a summary, Jesus won the battle, so God's justice will be fulfilled and we can be restored. And that is the gospel of control. With that, let's just take one or two questions, think, do you want to say something, and then let's move on to Jose. I move. I like Dan said that he's he's a huckleberry. I think that's really good. Hope he's a huckleberry. The point I was going to make is that the day of the Lord is a very important concept. But you know what we see in these prophets like Hosea and Joel is what's quoted in the New Testament is what's very very important that we can take out of that. What Jesus said in, in Luke twenty four in the road to Emmaus. That's what was presented in the New Testament. I think it's all very consistent when you think about it. Right? That's the, those, are, those are the important points to take out of it. But I think the day of the Lord, you know, I was reading Luke, 
in Luke 17, Jesus says to the apostles and disciples, you're waiting for one of the days of the Lord, right? Because judgment is a very important concept. And I think God, one of the reasons God created days the way he did in 24-hour segments, periods, is we can judge each day, do a post-mortem after the day, see what we need to include. And what you said about repentance, I think, is, is, is really important for Christians. We should repent every day. You know, not not to be sin conscious like we're such miserable sinners. We are, but, but that should we shouldn't be condemned by that. So it's one of these deals where we're the worst sinners, but we get we're so loved yeah, by grace. So it's it's both, right? That's right. So it's, there's a humility to it, a meekness to it. And if you get that part, but I think judgment is so important because you know he says in the Lamentations. Who has spoken unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Yeah. So God does all that. It's all His providence. Yeah. It's all, right. all these storms, you know, hurricanes, tornadoes, God's providence. He's in the middle of it. He does it all. Yeah. Right? He's so in, in Isaiah it says He creates, and you know, the King James says, I create evil. In, in the modern versions of ESP, it says, I create a plan. Right? He does all. What's the purpose? That's what we have to explore. Is it judgment on us? Yes. You know, you and I have talked before about if he judges New York, right? There's so much sin in New York. There's so many good Christians in there, right? But that doesn't mean it, that, that he's not going to judge. If he judged Jerusalem. There were Christians in Jerusalem. Christians got out. That's right. But God's judgment, I, I, I don't think we understand it. I think you get on it. We don't understand the enormity of our sin. But, Yes, and thank you. Good, uh, very good to end on that. We don't understand the enormity of our sin. The one thing you said about give God gave us 24 days, 24 hour periods to think about our sin every day. First of all, for us, His mercies are new every morning. His mercies are new every morning. We can say, Lord, you forgive my sins. Every day I confess and I repent, you forgive my sins. Praise the Lord for that. But if you don't have that, if you're not in Christ, every day is judgment day. Every day. You gotta stand and fall on your own two feet with your guidance and your own works every day. If you don't have Christ, all the judgment comes on you every day. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Gospel Addict Podcast. Feel free to contact us via email at gospeladdictpodcast at gmail.com. Stay tuned for our next episode and remember, on your worst days, you're never beyond the reach of God's grace. And on your best days, you're never beyond the need. God's grace. See you next time.